friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Welcome to all our listeners in 2023. This is our first show of the year. We came back from Christmas with some big news out of Rome, the passing of dear Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. He died on New Year's Eve, a life so well-lived, so complex, such such a a life leaving us with so much uh, material for reflection and learning and all his writings. We're going to devote the entire show to him with some great guests as we reflect on his life and legacy. We're going to go to Rome to catch up with senior Vatican correspondent Edward Penton of the National Catholic Register. He's been in Rome and taking part in all of the events, including Pope Benedict's wake and his funeral presided over by Pope Francis. But first, my TCA colleague and co-hostess Ashley McGuire will be joining me with some of her thoughts on his life and writings as we celebrate this man and his life so well lived. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm back with my co-hostess Ashley McGuire from the Catholic Association. She's been kind enough to join me today to keep talking about our dear Pope Emeritus, Pope Benedict, who left us last week and um, has since uh, been has been mourned and, and buried, but he's very much with us still. He's in our prayers, and of course he accompanies us from heaven where I'm, I'm certain he's at. So thank you for joining me, Ashley. Oh, it's always great to be talking with you, Gracie, and especially about such a, a wonderful man and a wonderful person. He died on New Year's Eve, and, and it's an interesting way to start the year, I think, um, from a Catholic perspective, to, to look back at what his pontificate meant um, and, and to, to look sort of at the, the terrain of where he left us. Of course, he left us a while ago as far as being a pope, but how the terrain has shifted since he left us and, and how what he, what he meant and the things that he wrote and talked about can help us navigate going forward. Because even since he left the papacy, since he resigned, a lot has happened in the world. And many things have changed, and and in many ways we are more insecure about our position in the world and and how to navigate the world that is getting stranger and stranger. I feel that he was the person who who had a lot of the keys to these to these mysteries that we find ourselves ever deeper in. Yeah, I was thinking about the fact that he, you know, I know he didn't become pope until you know a few years into this millennium, but you know, he was very much at the beginning of it. And I think he laid such an important foundation uh, for this millennium, especially because he was so known for his theology, his truly deep, deep sense of theology in a time, you know, just almost so 
disconnected from the modern world, which is like the opposite of theological. And so it was trending in the direction of social media and Twitter and reducing things to the absolute most simple soundbite. And he brought a lot of people into the church. And a lot of the articles and stories that came out after his death were of people who were converted by him. And, you know, I don't think we always associate him with being someone charismatic, but, you know, I think it's important to remember that in this era, his profound um, theological sense, his his understanding of faith and reason was what drew people in because we're very much in a, an era that's anti-reason. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people. I remember being in college and reading the newspaper and seeing the story about his address at Regensburg mm-hmm. and being sort of curious. I wasn't a Catholic being sort of curious to see what he said that had people created such an outcry. And I ended up reading the address and I recommend it to people. It's, it's a dense read, but it's not a terribly long read. And it's actually very, I think, accessible. And it's, you know, I, I wrote down a few of the quotes because it's very much about the essential relationship between, between faith and reason Wait, you said um, you said something interesting, Ashley, leading up to this, though. You said that the challenges right now are against reason. You said reason. You didn't say faith. I wonder if you meant to say faith, but you said reason. Um, because well, I... Oh, yeah, I mean... I, and I agree with you. I think the challenges right now are against reason, but I feel that he back he went into this working on the, the fact that reason was used to discount faith in many ways and how how that's completely wrong because reason leads you to faith and faith is reasonable and and at the back of all this faith is god who is the logos who is the reason anyway i wanted to point that out because i think that that's a very interesting um subtlety there no definitely i mean in many respects our culture is against both it's against faith and against reason Mm -hmm. you know i think you know there was a period where and, and this is, you know, still very much believed that reason is against faith, but now there's just an outright rejection of faith altogether, but also reason. I also mean, just reason, yeah. Pure pure common sense, but, you know. Which the, reminds me, this. I saw something on the news, a man is, was exec- is going to be executed or was just executed in some Midwestern state. He's in the news, it says in the AP, he's the first, tra- she is the first transgender woman to ever be executed. And it shows a picture of a man in pigtails uh, who, you know, raped and killed a woman and then raped a 14-year-old girl. And that's what he's being executed for, but he's being called a woman, a transgender woman. So all of us are in this moment now where reason, no longer was it good enough to throw away faith. Now we're throwing away reason. And that makes sense because if faith is reason, and faith is reasonable. If you start by put, pitching faith out the window, reason is go is going to go along with it. Yeah. I I do think that Pope Benedict, you know, was was walking down this path in in his theology and pointing the way, like why how we end up in the place we're at. Yeah, well, it's kind of a cliche to say it. it is a cliche to say he was ahead of his time, but mm-hmm. he was, and he saw he saw where things were going. In many respects, many popes have been like that. I always think about Pope Paul VI and you know what he foretold would come of out of the sexual revolution uh, with sort of an eerie accuracy. But um, no, I mean we, the the grip of relativism is is dizzying, and. And you're right. I've never really thought about it that way. But that if you take down one, you take down both. And 
I, I wrote down this quote from his Regensburg address, which I went back and reread um, yesterday. He said, God does not become more divine when we push him away from us in a sheer impenetrable voluntarism. Rather, the truly divine God is the God who has revealed himself as Logos and as Logos has acted and continues to act lovingly on our behalf. Um, and he says that, you know, God both transcends knowledge while at the same time being in harmony with the eternal word and with our reason um, and how, you know, the trajectory of the modern era, as he said, is the reduction of the radius of science and reason. And I think about how kind of ironic it is that we live in this time where everybody has these yard signs that says science is real, which is such a poor grammar and not a well thought out. I haven't seen concept. those signs. Thank God they're not in my oh, neighborhood. Oh, Are oh, those around no, you? That's because you live in Florida. Um, <laughs> no, in the Washington DC area, everybody has those signs um, that science is real. And yet I think about how not only is there this um, outright rejection of science, um, scientific truth, but how science is used. And this is another thing that Pope Benedict warned about, which is um, the, re- the use of science to reduce to basically result in the reduction of man and how when you when you remove the moral ethic which is what is bestowed by faith then science becomes a very scary thing and you know we we've seen that in in so many ways with the complete sort of divorce of moral ethics from from science and science itself uh is just becomes this kind of um this sort of hurtling thing with no with no parameters with no boundaries so no well, science um, itself doesn't offer us any any direction or any any instruction on how we should use the science i mean the science is that is a rough it's a it's it's a tool right i mean science is the understanding of the natural universe the natural world and and apply and then applying our our knowledge in order to achieve certain ends that what can science can't be anything more than that can it i mean once you start saying i I believe in the science all you're saying is i believe in a in a list of facts that can be proved through scientific deductions and reasonings and and experiments but that gets that gets you nowhere morally Right, or or it actually takes you backwards morally. Um, yeah, maybe it takes you backwards so. because then if you say to yourself, "Well, I believe in the science," then then what you're really saying is, "Okay, well, whatever the science allows me to do is okay for me to do." And, and science becomes its own kind of god, except that it becomes a sort of terrifying god, and you know, then we have a Frankenstein world. And um, but 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 no, truly, I think um, that. Pope Benedict brought a lot of people into the church and drew them back to Catholicism. You know, he helped he helped me personally with orthodoxy. The idea that what the church teaches is true and reasonable and that you can follow it, you can at least try to follow it with all your heart and and it will be and it will be the right home for you. I'm not know if I'm explaining that correctly. Um it will be the right home for you in the sense that you will be living in the truth, but also in a way that's charitable and just and merciful. Because I think that um, one problem that many of us Christians have and Catholics have is that we are told from the beginning that to be true to our faith is to also be intolerant. 
that to believe that we are right means that we believe other people are wrong. And to believe that God is a certain way and wants certain things from us and expects certain, certain behaviors from us, then we are calling the people who don't do these things wrong and that, that that's just intolerant and unkind of us. Um, Pope Benedict, for me, was a person, and I'll tell you the story, when, when he became Pope, I knew nothing about him and I was feeling very sad about losing Pope uh, John Paul II, who was my Pope from my childhood and, and who I felt a lot of love for and affection and closeness. And I, I decided to read his books because there was nothing else for me to do to get to know him, right? He was a very shy person who didn't project in a, in a way like Pope Paul II, John Paul II did. Um, and I picked up a book called Truth and Tolerance. And I remember it just blew me away because I was having at that time this, this idea that it was, it was very hard to, to say these things are true because the church tells me so because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And also to live in a tolerant way, in a way that was respectful of other people's uh, their, their beliefs, but also their path and their life of their, their spiritual growth, right? I mean, d- people are in, in different stages of their, of their life. So anyway, for me, he was a great help in, in achieving that, that certainty that, that I could access that truth and then live in that truth in a, in, a, in a generous and merciful and tolerant way. If you look at how much of his writing and teaching was dominated by the theme of Christian love, and again, you know, his last words were, Jesus, I love you. Like his, he just seemed like love, like he was, he himself was a, a, a man who loved, um, who loved Christ, who loved the church, who loved the church's teaching. You know, I love the fact that he, he didn't want to be Pope, uh, was not something he was seeking. He wanted to be, I think, sort of the caretaker of the Vatican archives. And I think it's because he just loved the church so much that he wanted to kind of be its caretaker. He wanted to spend, you know, his last years doing that. Um, And he ended up being called to serve the church in a different way. But I, I so agree that I think um, his, his sort of uh, theological preoccupation with love and the theme of love transcended his papacy and um, gave gave that charism to all of his teachings, uh, which is so essential in, in kind of the nihilistic, um, severe world that we live in, where it's, it's hard to um, to kind of square our faith with our culture. And and he hmm. he he helped to give us. Um, well, he connected he connected truth with love. And what we're right. experiencing in our culture is a, we're being told since we're very young and in a very forceful way, your truth is not anybody else's truth so that your truth can't be love, right? Because when I love someone else, if I'm denying their truth because it doesn't square with the truth with a capital T, then I am being wrong. I'm being unkind to them and I'm not being generous and I'm not being tolerant and I'm not being accepting. And But he was able to make all of that clear that... God is, Jesus is truth, and He is love. And those two things live in the same universe. They live in the same person. And we can um, find through reason and through faith, we can access the truth more and more and more, and also the love. And the love will, the love is, is not separate from the truth. It is the truth. 
Yeah, I, this is another quote of his that I love so much. She said, the core of faith rests upon accepting being loved by God and therefore to believe is to say yes, not only to him, but to creation, to creatures, above all, to men, to try to see the image of God in each person and thereby to become a lover. Oh, how beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. Right? Hold on hold on tight to God's hand and then see the face of God in, in the man standing next to you. Even when that's you, that's hard, when that's uh, when when so many barriers separate you from that person, and you know it's it it's so interesting that in his spiritual testimony that he wrote near the end of his life, um, which is another beautiful read that I commend to our listeners, um, he talks about it's interesting how much time he spends on his childhood, and how much love he clearly felt as a child. And his, he talks a lot about his, his parents and the love of his mother. And um, it was just such a kind of beautiful, I loved it, the simplicity. I mean, not to call his spiritual testimony simple. It wasn't, um, it was very profound, but, but that a man so erudite, so learned. I mean, when I was rereading his Regensburg address, I was like, I, I can't get over how learned he was and that was actually the thing that struck me when i first read it was who is this person what is the catholic church that you know people are are writing on a completely different plane than anything i've ever read even at a you know top tier university but that you know in the end he was reflecting on love in these very simple terms uh, simple things as you know about his childhood and and the love of his family and um and i just thought that that was his, his this uh, te- this testament he wrote it when he resigned um, to be read at uh, to be released at his death, uh, and uh, okay. it, you I can see he wrote it. it more recently. No, actually, he wrote it a while back, a few years ago. I think he wrote it when he resigned, but to be read at his death, and it's something that popes do. They they leave a spiritual testament, and the our listeners can find it at, at the National Catholic Register. It's under Benedict XVI shares his final thoughts with the Church. It's very beautiful. It's very short. Um, and and it is touching how he starts with his family and his deep his deep gratefulness to to the shining faith of his father that was so clear and so so steady for him and so magnetic, and 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 the and the great love of his mother. It's it's how wonderful, no, to look back at the end of of, of a life like Pope Benedict's, um, such an accomplished man and such a saintly man, and and to look first at at, at mother and father. Um, it, it gives you no. It gives us as mothers uh, a lot to think about about how we yeah, are, no, how we're farm. You know, we're preparing um, this this space, this this the, the field for our children to grow in, and that the the great trees that they could grow into. Yeah, it reminded me of this line in the play Hamilton, where he Hamilton talks about planting seeds in a garden that you won't see. But I thought, you know again going back to the theme of love just that you know here's this man who led the largest religious institution in the world and the one and true church uh and you know may and i hope will be declared a saint but certainly as you say lived a very saintly holy life and it was the love of his parents that he sort of attributes to laying you know a foundation for a beautiful and and noble and happy life and so i think it it gives you know it was another it was like a another gift that he gave us which was you know just parents that you know you have this eternal impact on the on the Mm -hmm. children that you're raising 
and maybe your children have an eternal impact on 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 who knows who <laughs> right i mean it's yeah. uh amazing how yeah we see this i think this week also was uh, saint Therese, saint Therese of lisieux was was her her, her anniversary 150th i think uh, anniversary yes. of her birth you know these people who are born into certain families where they're they're given so much so much to grow on and then they end up being spiritual giants and affecting millions of people helping millions of people get to heaven what a wonderful way to think about it in his testament um, that we were just talking about he he talks i'm going to quote from it because it's very pretty and after talking about his family and the people um, like his brother and sister who also were very close to him during his whole life and helped him so much um, he goes back to his point that he really i think uh, got he he revisited his entire theological career, which was so long and and so complex. And I can't begin to really. I've I have several of his books, and most of them are beyond my understanding because I'm not a theologian or a philosopher. I wish I had more philosophy and theology under my belt. Um, but uh, he keeps going back to this, and in his testament, he he says it again. He says, "Do not let yourselves be confused. It often seems that science." is able to offer irrefutable results at odds with the Catholic faith. I have experienced the transformations of the natural sciences since long ago, and I've been able to see how, on the contrary, apparent certainties against the faith have vanished, proving to be not science, but philosophical interpretations only apparently pertaining to science. It is now 60 years that I have been accompanying the journey of theology, and with the succession of different generations, I have seen these Theses, sorry, that seemed unshakable collapse, proving to be mere hypotheses. The liberal generation, the existentialist generation, the Marxist generation. I saw and see how out of the tangle of assumptions, the reasonableness of faith emerged and emerges again. Jesus Christ is truly the way, the truth, and the life. And the church, with all its insufficiencies, is truly his body. And that's the end of his testament. I feel that in this, in that short, in that very short um, writing of his testament, he he laid out the whole purpose of his life, which was to point to the reasonableness of of uh, our faith, that science does not refute it, and then to say Jesus Christ is as who is who is who we live for and through and with and and who gives us our being and he is the way the truth and the life he was always pointing in his in his wildly deep and profound theological way towards a personal relationship with jesus right and you know for those who don't have time to read the spiritual testimony you just have his final words which were jesus i love you mm -hmm. and that is another way of pointing at us at all that Jesus asks for mm -hmm. is is to hear those words professed in authenticity. Um, and so he, he leaves us with even the most simple, simple model of of Christian faith, which is again so striking considering that he was such an intellectual giant. Well, but he makes it he makes it understood that you you dig and dig and dig and dig into the philosophy and the theology and the science of life of the universe of of all human knowledge and 
at the end of all your digging or at the end of all your climbing, there is Jesus. I mean, he, there is God. He, he is the logos. He's the, he's the reason, the reason behind the universe. You know, the reasoning mind that makes the universe function. And he is the love which creates and keeps creating and, and, and keeps energizing all of us and keeping us alive. I mean, we're all alive and are eternally alive because of the love that, that he pours into us. So it doesn't matter in which direction you... I think Pope Benedict teaches us that it doesn't matter in which lofty direction you, you rise, you arrive always at the same place. If, if you are walking in the truth, you always arrive at Jesus. You arrive at God. Well, on a different note, I just wanted to point out how much, how beautiful the photos were of him lying in state. Um, I loved that he was laying, uh, laid to rest between a Christmas tree and a nativity. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was so beautiful and so Bavarian. And I saw that and I thought, I think he would be happy with this. You know what I was thinking? My father died a few, just a month ago, really. And he also, we, we had a, a very traditional wake and funeral for him, and he lay in state in his own, in his own small way. He was no pope. Um, but I thought how wonderful it is that, that we revere. In this world nowadays, in this culture where people die, and we immediately start celebrating their life, and, and we cremate them, and, you know, the, the, that whole mourning aspect of, of, of life, the, that rhythm of mourning and, and all those rites that are so important, we, we don't follow them very often anymore. And I was thinking how beautiful it is that, that his body is lying in state in St. Peter's and that hundreds of thousands of people are, are visiting him. I saw his secretary kiss his hands. You know, I, you know, just very recently I was kissing my father's head in his coffin, and maybe that sounds a little morbid, but <laughs> I wanted to kiss his his head. I wanted to kiss him one more time before before I would never see his body again. I know his soul is is with God, but but his body is important too. So I was very moved at seeing his his body, his his earthly remains, which are you know which God made for him, which God made for him for his soul to to be entwined with, and it was lovely to see. Well, our time is up, Ashley, but I thought that I would um, end with a beautiful quote. I've been reading, like you, I've been reading a lot of beautiful things that he's, he wrote over the years. He wrote, If we allow the love of Christ to change our hearts, then we can change the world. This is the secret of authentic happiness. So many people now feel rightly that they have so much to give the world and that they want to change the world. The secret of authentic happiness is, in fact having the love of Christ in our hearts, allowing it to transform us. Again, that's Pope Benedict pointing us back to the way, the truth, and the life. And as, as his words, his, his final words, I hope, I hope all of us can end our lives with, with that beautiful sentiment, Jesus, I love you. So thank you, Ashley, for joining me today. As always, it's a pleasure, Gracie. to the show, Edward. Thank you, Chrissy. Good to be with you again. Here in the United States and across the world, in fact, all of us uh, were very much aware that uh, Pope Benedict's health was failing. Of course, he's very elderly, so every day is a gift. 
uh, when people get to be that age. Um, but you were the first to report that he had uh, kidney uh, failure, renal failure. His kidney function was was deteriorating rapidly, and yes. you know that was uh, definitely a, a death knell uh, for someone of his advanced years. Um, we're all mourning all across the world. Uh, the great man, the the great saint. I think we can. We can almost surely call him that. Tell us what is, I know you're in Rome, tell us what is the situation in Rome? What's what's the feeling in Rome around the death of this great man? Well, I think a mixture of both solemnity and also a great sort of appreciation and, and in some ways joy, looking back on his life and the great uh, legacy that he leaves the church. There's a sort of mixture of sadness and, and joy at this at this event. And his body is still lying in state as we speak? It is, yes. It's been there since uh, Monday morning and will be there until 7 o'clock tonight on Wednesday. Uh, yeah. Okay, this this uh, recording, we're recording this in advance. This will air after the funeral and the funeral is on okay. Thursday the 5th. I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's on Thursday the 5th. Um, yes, yes. And so what what do we ex- what do you expect to see with the funeral? What kind of funeral will this be? Maybe a lot of this has been hashed out in the news, but may- maybe many of our listeners um, are not not aware of the details. Maybe by then they'll have seen it. <laughs> so maybe this is old news. Yeah. But what uh, what do you think is going to happen with around the funeral? Well, it's going to be um, as uh, the Vatican spokesman said, Matteo Bruno. It's going to be a simple and solemn ceremony. It's not going to be um, particularly traditional, surprisingly enough, given uh, despite Benedict's uh, strong preference for tradition. But it's going to be much more of a sort of simple. Uh, affair. It's, going, it's not going to be. It's not going to be the Roman canon of the mass in the uh, funeral. It's going to be Eucharistic prayer three, which is uh, much shorter. So it'll be fairly, fairly straightforward and short. And a few other trappings that would normally be given to a pope at a funeral have not been included because, of course, he's not pope anymore, and he wasn't uh, for the last nearly ten years of his life. Is this the first time that the Church has has laid to rest a pope emeritus? It is, I believe. Well, there was, of course, uh, Pope Celestine V back in the 13th century, who uh, who was buried uh, by his successor. Uh, but he was actually, um, unfortunately, kind of resigned in disgrace. Although he was later rehabilitated and later made a saint. But that means that uh, his funeral, I don't think, was even public. I believe it. it. It, of course, happened, but it wasn't made public. Oh, so that was a long time ago. So this is, we're forging new ground here, but it's ground that we may have to walk again, correct? I mean, as people are living uh, into more advanced ages, we may find ourselves uh, with the same situation, even with Pope Francis or his successor, where somebody um, with all the, with all the, with all the desire that they might have in their heart to continue in the, in the, in that position, they may not be able to. That's right. I mean, there's often talk about this, this becoming a more regular um, sort of uh, sequence of events because, as you say, people are getting older um, and they, they live longer in a way that they didn't before. And so, um, and also often now, uh, those who do live longer tend to perhaps lose um, mental abilities and and uh, certain um, consciousness or awareness. And so that, that could be a problem going forward. And I think, in a way, Benedict kind of made the the pathway for that, that possibility at least for, for for popes to retire. So certainly that's something that Francis has always said and said that he may do himself, although I think it's unlikely at this stage that he would resign. 
I have heard some people be very critical about Pope Benedict um, since at the time of his death and since then, and, and it saddens me very much. Um, they they rake up old um, old accusations of him. I don't even want to mention it on the air, but uh, terrible things about him participating in, 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 in the Nazi system when he was very young. Um, other things like saying that he, he should have stayed on, he shouldn't have resigned. What do you make of, of this, I, I think, sort of shameful um, raking up of ugly things after a man's death? Well, I think it's a great shame that even during his life, um, Benedict, who's, as Archbishop Genswein, his long-serving personal secretary, has said, was so often misunderstood. And, um, and also, also that he, he drew enemies um, precisely because he upheld the church's teaching. And, and just as Christ did, uh, people hate that. People hate uh, many, some people hate the truth. The mm-hmm. devil hates the truth. And, um, and I think a lot of that opposition to him uh, has come from the simple fact that he did uphold the teachings of Christ in a very faithful um, and strong way. And, uh, and he also had a great innocence about him, which, uh, which I think also attracts, uh, seems to attract at least a certain opposition, unfortunately. Um, he had a very much childlike innocence, which which was very a mark of his holiness, and uh, that too, I think, provoked um, provoked a devilish reaction, if you might say. Archbishop Genswein has also said in recent days that uh, the devil was very much present um, as an attack on Benedict throughout his life, certainly through his later life. And uh, as I say, I think that's probably the reason why. It must have been extremely painful for him to. For that kind of martyrdom, it's a kind of extended martyrdom um, to hold fast to the truth, to be so so firm and so clear um, about the teachings of Christ and and and, and the beautiful mm-hmm. way that the church explains them and holds fast to them, um, and how we can also and I think what was for me was very special about Pope Benedict was the way that he was able to explain the way that we can live in a world that's not allied to the truth. But but live in truth and also with tolerance, right? To have um, tolerance for yeah. others who, who who cannot comprehend. Exactly, and that was his great strength. I mean, he was a great teacher. He was he was able to convey these very complex um, or rather detailed teachings of the church uh, in a profoundly simple and profound way, and and in a beautiful way too. He was very much interested in conveying the beauty of the faith, the beauty of Christ, and the beauty of truth, of course. And, uh, and I think that resonated with a lot of people today who, in societies which have so often forgotten that God exists or live as if God doesn't exist, um, need that. And that for, for them, he was a shining light, a real light, light for the world in the way he taught. And uh, that in the, as the world becomes more dark in, the, in light of secularism and the turning away from God. So his teaching became even brighter. And uh, I think that's what you're seeing now as we, as we reflect on his great teaching legacy. He started his pontificate very much against um, what, what he considered the greatest scourge of our times, which is moral relativism. He spoke out against it right away. Um, although, you know, looking back at, at what he had written before, he was a, he is a, pro, he was a prolific writer, obviously, before he became Pope and an amazing theologian. He was always very much um, writing about that, that the terrible conundrum of, of living in a world that's ruled by moral relativism. 
and and how it disassociates us from from the truths that 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 we need to sustain our spirit and and to sustain all the wonderful things about being a human right like like our families and and the way that we we can love each other and help each other um, mm. get through this life but he he started his pontificate very much um, denouncing moral relativism and its dangers they called him the Pope's Rottweiler before he was before he became Pope why right. how how much will he be missed just because of that clarity because I think since Pope Francis became Pope that kind of um, that kind of um, that shining light of, of clarity has 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 been missed by many Catholics Yes, it has. That's um, exactly, and I think that that was his, as I say, his great legacy was that ability to to transmit the faith, as, as you say, in a, in a very relativistic age. He was very strong on that particular element, and he one of his greatest um, focus or focal points was the fact that faith goes together with reason, and there's a harmony between the two. For him, you cannot have one the other without the other. Faith. Faith and reason go together, and I think that was a great part of his teaching, which he left behind. Uh, and also, I mean, it's a big part of his famous Regensburg speech, which of course upset the Islamic world. But his main point in that speech was really to say that as the further the West goes along the path of reason without faith, the more it's going to clash with Islam, which is uh, more faith than it is to do with reason. And so um, he foresaw that clash becoming ever greater because of those two diverging uh, philosophies that have been sort of dominant in both the West and Islam. So, so he had these great insights which were very relevant to our times. And uh, and I think, um, yeah, some prophetic. He was very much a prophetic voice for I, our times. I reread his, his Regensburg speech at his death because um, I remember very vividly the way that he was attacked for that the way that he was denounced all across the world, mm. um, blamed for any possible in, uh, terrorist attacks that might take place, and the, and the clash of the, the Christian and Islamic civilization going forward was all going to be laid at his feet because of this, this speech at a, you know, this very academic and very thoughtful and very deeply theological uh, speech that he gave at Regensburg. Um, and it occurred to me that he, he was, he's, it was, as you say, addressed to he, he addressed the, the issue of Islam and faith and reason. Um, but also it was very prophetic for us in the West because so much has happened um, since then that shows us that we have, uh, by abandoning faith, in a sense, we've also lost reason because so many things that are, that are being uh, told to us that we must believe and that we must acknowledge are very far away from reason. The things that we know by yes. logic that we can sense with our eyes and and understand just by virtue of having an intellect. Exactly. I think when he said reason in that context, he meant not really a true reason. The true reason comes with um, when it's joined by faith. <laughs> and I think his his view was that when you just base it on scientific facts or scientific reasoning, um, it's inadequate for our for for understanding the our meaning of life and so many other questions. So so yes, exactly, and that. That shows just how I think he went deeper and showed this importance of faith and reason together. And uh, yeah, it, it was something that I think Western society particularly is lacking. Yeah, because it's one he's he was saying when you uh, faith and reason are 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 enjoined, right? They <laughs> reason leads to faith. Right. They're not opposing. They're very much working together. And God is God is reason, right? He's the great logos. 
um, and then abandoning. But when we abandon faith, we even lose our reason because we stop we stop making those those connections between what we can see and and taste and prove and with 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 experiments and the great reason behind all of it. Yes, exactly. Um, I think, I mean, I'm not an expert in this area, but this is, we need to talk to a philosopher or theologian about this, but I think his emphasis was on uh, that it leads to positivism, that leads to a certain scientific reasoning, which, as I say, it's, it's inadequate. It doesn't, it doesn't go to the depths of reason and, in, and how reason should truly function. And that can only come with, when it's backed by Christian faith and faith in, in Jesus Christ. Is Rome right now very full of pilgrims? Are you? I know Rome can get very busy around these these big events. Is, are you are you yes. seeing that that fullness and, and excitement in Rome? Very much so. Yes, there's a great number of people in Rome right now, and I think from noon today, uh, this is um, well. We've had so far uh, 160,000 visitors by by Wednesday lunchtime. Uh, just over three days to to pay their respects to to Benedict's body and uh, and and where has his where exactly has his body been lying in state? So it's been in the the front altar, just in front of the main altar, in the Basilica of St Peter's Basilica, oh. the, um, the, uh, the 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 altar of the confession. It's called the Baldacchino, the very big mm-hmm. uh, central altar of the church. He's just in the front of that. Uh, which is the same place that they placed uh, John Paul II to after his death. Oh, so I can just imagine the throngs the outside in the in the in Great St Peter's Square. How how wonderful that yes. must be to see. Yes, and and the long queues and uh, and also a lot of journalists here. I think a thousand have been accredited to to cover this. So it's going to be very much uh, well covered in the in the media, I think. But what's interesting, Gracie, is that that the um, the Vatican is only um, officially invited to two delegations from Italy and uh, Germany, uh, but all the other heads of state are free to come in a, on a personal basis. So they're not being invited in a, in a state uh, official way. But oh. a few are coming. And uh, uh, so but I think most of them will be ambassadors to the Holy See, but there will be some heads of state from Hungary, for example, and Poland, and uh, uh, the Queen of Spain is coming. And so there are a few others, but they're all coming in a personal capacity apart from Germany. And, uh, so that's a very different way of what what will be what we saw with Pope John Paul II and what we'll see with with Saint Francis. I mean, Pope, I'm sorry, right. with Pope Francis when when he dies, right. it will, it, it will, those would be It'll those be, will be affairs of state very much. Exactly, it'll be a lower key, um, but still, I think we're going to important people here and, and a lot of press and a great number of faces. Is is Pope Benedict's funeral in accord with his wishes, with what he wanted? Well, apparently so. This is what we're hearing from the Vatican spokesman, Matteo Bruni, that uh, this is all in accordance with his wishes. Now, uh, I, whether it's in accordance with his wishes to the every detail, we're not quite sure, but certainly it does seem to be the case. But um, yes, it's, uh, I think that's something actually I want to follow up with him about, because there is some, some concern that it's being perhaps downplayed a bit too much. Uh, and that um, even if Benedict did want a simple funeral, certain things should be included just to, to honor him properly. But uh, we'll see. I'll, I'll uh, try to find out more about that if I can. One of the visitors that's coming um, in an unofficial basis to, to the funeral is Cardinal Zen. And you've written a lot about him. Apparently, he was given clearance so that he could attend the funeral, traveling from Hong Kong. He, Cardinal Zen pointed out in a recent piece, he wrote about Benedict's stance on China, how important Pope Benedict was uh, to the fate of Catholics in China, and that 
he feels that Pope Benedict will be a powerful intercessor for China in heaven. What do you expect uh, from Cardinal Zen's visit? Yeah, well, he's, he's, um, it's, it's, um, uh, there's a lot of um, happiness that he's coming because it was, it was probably uh, it was difficult for him to get out of China given that he's, uh, he's been uh, in court lately for, for, for alleged crimes which he denied um, and uh, was found guilty of these crime of fraud, which he's which he denies and strongly denies, and so there are supporters. Uh, but yes, it's um, it's a, it's very interesting that he has come. I think he felt he wouldn't be back to Rome. He's now 90, so I think he he's already made his last trip. So what will be interesting, I think, when he does come, is whether he'll get a meeting with Pope Francis, who famously denied him a meeting the last time he came. So it's it'll be interesting to see if that happens. Uh, but yes, it's, it's, um, Benedict was very, very close to China. He, of course, wrote the famous or composed the, the famous uh, prayer for the Chinese, Chinese Catholic back in, uh, the, I think it was tw- 2009, and uh, instituted a World Day of, of Prayer for China. Um, so yes, Benedict, uh, Cardinal Zen was very close to him and found him a great supporter of, of Chinese Catholics. So, uh, so yes, it's great that he's coming. Well, thank you for your time today, Edward. Uh, we'll continue to keep uh, Pope Benedict in our prayers, and, and we'll ask for his intercession. And thank you. Please make sure to our listeners to keep up on all things Vatican with Edward's analysis at ncregister.com, reporting always from Rome. Thank you, Edward, and Happy New Year. Thank you, Gracie. Happy New Year to you, too. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with each of us this Sunday as we celebrate the epiphany of the Lord Jesus. I'm recording this homily in Rome on the day of the funeral of Pope Benedict XVI. I thought it would be fitting, therefore, as we pray for Pope Benedict and thank God for the gift he has been for the Church, to share some of the thoughts he gave the Church, as successor of St. Peter, during the eight times he celebrated the Feast of the Epiphany here, by focusing on why he said today's feast is so important, and then sharing his insights on the protagonists and elements in this history-changing story. The Solemnity of the Epiphany, Pope Benedict said, is a celebration of the manifestation of Christ to the peoples represented by the Magi as the universal king to all the nations and to all who seek the truth. It marks the fact that by becoming man in Mary's womb, the Son of God showed that he did not come only for the people of Israel, represented by the shepherds of Bethlehem, but also for the whole of humanity. It's the beginning of a great procession that continues throughout history, humanity's pilgrimage to Jesus Christ, to the God who was born in a stable, who died on the cross, and who, having risen from the dead, remains with us always until the consummation of the world. But at the same time, the epiphany shows to us God is himself on pilgrimage, a pilgrimage to man. And so on the Feast of the Epiphany, we join the men and the women who in every age set out on that way that leads to the child of Bethlehem to offer him homage as the Son of God and to bow down before him. Who are the Magi and what can we learn from them? 
2012, Pope Benedict said that they likely belonged to the great astronomical tradition that had developed in Mesopotamia over the centuries. But this information of itself isn't enough. No doubt there were many astronomers in ancient Babylon, but only these few set off to follow the star that they recognized as the Star of the Promise, pointing them along the path to the true king and savior. They were, as we might say, he continued, men of science, but not simply in the sense that they were searching for a wide range of knowledge. They wanted something more. They wanted to understand what being human is all about. They were men with restless hearts, not satisfied with the superficial and the ordinary. They were men in search of the promise, in search of God. And they were watchful men, capable of reading God's signs. 2013, the last time he preached on this feast, he added that they were men driven by a restless quest for God and the salvation of the world. They desired more than simply knowledge about things. They wanted, above all else, to know what is essential. They wanted to know how we succeed in being human. And therefore, they wanted to know if God exists and where and how he exists, whether he's concerned about us and how we can encounter him. They wanted to understand the truth about ourselves and about God and the world. Their outward pilgrimage was an expression of their inward journey, the inner pilgrimage of their hearts. There were men who sought God and were ultimately on the way toward him. They were seekers after God. In 2012, he added another characteristic. They were also courageous yet humble. We can imagine them having to endure a certain amount of mockery for setting off to find the king of the Jews at the cost of so much effort. For them, however, it mattered little what this or that person, what even influential and clever people thought. For them, it was a question of truth itself, not human opinion. Hence, they took upon themselves the sacrifices and the effort of a long and uncertain journey. Their humble courage was what enabled them to bend down before the child of poor people and to recognize in him the promised king, the one they had set out on both their outward and their inward journey to seek and to know. He said in 2007, 2,000 years later, we can thus recognize in the figures of the Magi a sort of prefiguration of these three constitutive dimensions of modern humanism, the political, the scientific, and the religious dimensions, all of which are meant to seek the truth. What about the gifts they brought? In 2010, Benedict said, they had brought gold, incense, and myrrh. These are certainly not gifts that correspond to basic human needs. At that moment, the Holy Family was far more in need of something different from incense or myrrh. Not even the gold could have been of immediate use to them. But these gifts have a profound significance because they're an act of justice. In fact, according to the mentality prevailing in the East, they represent the recognition of a person as God and King, that is, an act of submission. These gifts were meant to communicate that from that moment, the donors belonged to the sovereign baby before them, and they recognize his authority. And that brought them to their knees. Benedict said in 2006, the Magi worshipped a simple child in the arms of his mother Mary, because in him they recognized the source of the twofold light that had guided them, the light of the star and the light of the scriptures. In him they recognized the king of the Jews, the glory of Israel, but also the king of all peoples. And their encounter with him had immediate consequences. In 2010, Benedict said, the Magi could no longer follow the road they came on. They could no longer return to Herod. They could no longer be allied with that powerful and cruel sovereign. They'd always been led along the path of the child, making them ignore the great and powerful of the world and taking them to him who awaits us among the poor, the road of love that alone can transform us. So what are the takeaways for the church today, for you and me? The wise men f followed a star, but discovered, as Pope Benedict said in 
2012, that the language of creation alone is not enough. Only God's word, that which we encounter in sacred scripture, was able to mark out their path definitively. But that word leads us to a word made flesh. The great star, the true supernova that leads us on is Christ himself. He is, as it were, the explosion of God's love, which causes the great white light of his heart to shine upon the world. We may add, the wise men from the east, like all the saints, have themselves become constellations of God that mark out the path for others. In all these people being touched by God's word, they have released an explosion of light through which God's radiance shines upon our world and shows us the path. The saints, he said, are stars of God by whom we let ourselves be led to him for whom our whole being longs. In the litany of the saints, we call upon this whole constellation. The church exists in order to make us stars in this sense. The church, Pope Benedict said in 2006, is called to make Christ's light shine in the world, reflecting it in herself as the moon reflects the light of the sun by helping us to live in such a way that we will help all people turn to God through a witness of love, letting our light shine before others so that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. The epiphany of the Lord, he said in 2009, the manifestation of the church too, since the body is inseparable from the head. The church is humanity illuminated, baptized in the glory of God that is in his love, beauty, and dignity. Therefore, the feast of the epiphany invites the church and in her every community and every individual member of the faithful to imitate the service that the star rendered to the magi from the east guiding them to jesus to bring the light of christ to the peoples and vice versa to lead the peoples to christ pope benedict himself was certainly a star in this sense bringing to us christ's light and leading us to christ the light his teaching his preaching his virtues draw us to the light of the world he served as his earthly vicar we give thanks to the lord for that light and we make our own the prayer he lifted up in 2012, that we, like him, will allow ourselves to be guided by the star that is the word of God and follow it in our lives, walking with the church in which the word has pitched his tent, so that our road will always be illumined by a light that no other sign can give us, and so that we too will become stars for others, a reflection of that light that Christ caused to shine upon us. And that metamorphosis takes place at the altar, which he said in 2009 is the epiphany of Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist, the most humble sacrament in which Jesus both reveals and conceals his glory. That is the epiphany for which we are now preparing this Sunday. We're like the Magi, like Pope Benedict. We will meet the same Christ the wise men adored in Bethlehem, have the privilege to offer our gifts as well as ourselves, and return home changed forever. Eternal rest grant unto Pope Benedict, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon him. May he rest in peace. Amen. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 